This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm James Carlton and welcome to God Forbid. It was two and a half thousand years ago that the Buddha ordained women. But according to Buddhist scripture, he did so with hesitation. It was an ancient expression of radical gender equality, but also it sowed the seeds of gender subordination that still exists to this day in Buddhism. Well, every two years, the Sakyadita Conference attracts the most learned Buddhist women from around the world. And this month, for the first time ever, it'll be outside continental Asia, in Australia, in fact, with the keynote address to be delivered by our very own God Forbid guest. Susan Murphy is a master of Zen Buddhism, the author of Minding the Earth, Mending the World, and her latest book, Red Thread Zen, Humanly Entangled in Emptiness. Roshi Susan Murphy, welcome back to God Forbid. Thank you very much. And also at the conference and on the God Forbid panel, the venerable Aileen Barry. Her Irish aunt prayed that she'd be a nun, and her prayers were answered, except Aileen's a Buddhist, not a Catholic nun. She's worked as a prison <laughs> chaplain, and for years she was attendant to Jetsunma Tenzin Palma, one of only a handful of Western women ordained in the Tibetan tradition. And these days, adorned in Buddhist robes, Aileen is a sight to behold as office manager at Vivian Court, which is a Sydney trading house dealing futures, bonds and currencies. Aileen Barry, welcome to God Forbid. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So Aileen, how does a nice Catholic girl from Cork, Ireland, end up becoming an Australian Buddhist nun at a derivative trading house? (laughs) I'm still asking myself the same question. But it's a fun question to ask as you continue your journey, isn't it? This isn't a trading house like normal corporate Wall Street kind of operations, is it? No. The, so the founder, um, Rob Keldoulis, I, I actually met him here in Australia about 10 years ago. Uh, we worked together on the Dalai Lama's visits to Australia. And at that point, Rob had retired from futures trading, having made his money and having enough to retire. And then he was carrying on into philanthropic work. And he uses his money, and this trading house uses its uh, algorithms and technology to trade the markets, make money, but it's not for profit. The shareholders, what are the staff, and the money goes to NGOs. Yeah, so there aren't actually shareholders. The staff themselves decide where the profit goes, and and they they can nominate um, their NGOs. They've distributed about 15 million to date. And in that way, uh, what may otherwise be a rapacious corporate trading uh, business would be something that quite easily conforms with your Buddhist philosophy. Absolutely. I mean, Rob, he met His Holiness the Dalai Lama at one of the business lunches that His Holiness um, gave. And in that, His Holiness was asking the question, first of all, decide how much is enough. And that that's a very important question for us to determine. And once you have enough, if you're still earning you should be giving that away. You should be sharing it. Yes. It's not a call for everyone to live in poverty, but a call for people to make a decision about their lives. Yeah. I I mean, you have to take care of your own needs first so that you can be capable of helping others. Yes. Now, Susan Murphy, you grew up in an agnostic home. How did you come to receive what's called Dharma transmission in the Zen tradition? Well, that's a very long story and process. And when people ask me, why why did you end in any sort of Buddhist place in your life? 
I actually find that very hard to answer. If I really dig deeply, I'd say it's probably the natural world that drew me this way because it seems to me to be the complete revelation of, of reality and its vast interconnected self and the way that you can fall past your small self with ease in, within the natural world, relative ease. So that's part of it. I think as a child I just relished my barefoot childhood in North Queensland and, you know, the rainforest and, as it was then, the incredibly beautiful Great Barrier Reef. So we'll talk about the environment later in the program, but you mentioned the Great Barrier Reef. Is it uh, environmentally heartbreaking for you to see what's happening or is it yes. uh, a deeper pain, even spiritual pain? It's agonising for me. I find it, it, <clears throat> it brings me to tears to think about it. But, you know, if we can find within our own pain the caring that lies inside us. If we love the earth and if we love our lives, if we can manage not to be too afraid of our lives, you cannot but love the earth. And then if you follow that, the voice of caring, which I think is the voice of the earth, starts to have a chance to speak in you. It doesn't become a cost that must be borne to protect the environment. It's actually something that flows as naturally as, you know, uh, parents' is, love for a child. Yes. In fact, I think that's exactly how naturally it flows. Now, Aileen Barry, even though you're a Buddhist nun, does your Irish Catholic spiritual heritage remain with you? Absolutely. I was actually just relating a story about 10 years back. I visited um, Lisieux, where, the home of St. Therese. It's in France. And um, on, on going into her church, I mean, I, I was feeling a little neutral about it because, I, you know, in, in my mind I was thinking, now I'm a Buddhist, I'm just visiting what I used to be. Um, with a little curiosity, but I didn't have a sense of any strong devotion. But in the church, just watching a very simple action of one of the pilgrims there, she was making a, a, an offering to um, the place where St. Therese, her coffin was, but just watching that very simple expression of devotion, I, I started crying and I cried for a very long time. I, I actually just had to sit there for about an hour. Why do you think that was your response? Because I think I was sitting in a place of great authenticity. Um, I mean, St. Therese made the prayer that she would be of benefit after her death. And, and I think I was in that living presence. I mean, it was it was beyond conceptual or intellectual understanding. It was just a really felt presence. And, and particularly because I was going in with some scepticism, so it wasn't rising out of blind faith. Feeling that you're in the living presence of a Roman Catholic saint, isn't yes. that a blasphemous thing to say or feel <laughs> for a Buddhist nun? No, I don't think so. I mean, when the Buddha was asked, who are you? You know, are you a god? He said, no. Are you a human? He said, no. Um, so what are you? He said, I'm awake. And for me, sainthood is an expression of our human potential. I mean, to, to try and divide it up into religions is ridiculous. Well, I bet you that's why, Susan Murphy, your spiritual identity has become enmeshed with indigenous spiritual thinking. Well, I think that's quite a natural thing within Buddhism itself. I mean, the Buddha didn't go and ask for books or wise men or his quest ended or in a real sense his enlightenment 
began, sitting down on the earth under a tree. That's where it opened. So that's an utterly indigenous kind of response. But it's Indian indigenous, not Australian Aboriginal. Okay. And so wherever Buddhism has moved around the world, and it has rapidly moved, it wherever in Asia it discovered itself, it came to life in close companionship and in close conversation with existing spiritual traditions that were very earth-based. For example, in Tibet, it was Bon spirituality. In China, it was Taoism. In Japan, Shinto. And in Australia, naturally, if we're half awake, you can sense that there's a profoundly ah, wise and, and alive tradition of relatedness here that's right in front of us, if we care to look. Under our own feet. It's interesting that you say that because Indigenous people we've had on this program over the years have spoken of, uh, what do they call it, a pot plant Christianity. That is the Christianity comes to Australia, but the roots don't go into the Australian soil because there's a pot plant in the way. And if that pot plant gets smashed, then it can become a truly authentic Australian Christianity. And that gives it a kind of Indigenous flavour. Well... I've got a feeling, having worked whenever I can with Aboriginal elders and sat down, I have such a sense of the generosity of spirituality in this country in its original form. I feel there is a deep taproot in time here that is unequalled anywhere on the earth. And a willingness to forgive that also has a Christian flavour in in terms of the sacrifice of Jesus. That's true. It's almost shocking that that forgiveness is so here, so present. It almost frightens people off, I think, because it shames our own lack of interest, our sort of walled-in quality as Westerners in this place. But there are people of all spiritualities, if you want to call it that, who have made contact and immediately the flow of, let's call it Indigenous Dharma, starts to be available readily. And if you ask, you know, it's always ask. It is that sense of asking and openness. Now, Aileen Barry, you have seen uh, disparate, diverse spiritual traditions coexisting, sometimes clashing, sometimes living in harmony. Tell me about that time you were uh, on the River Jordan in the Holy Land, two busloads of pilgrims, one Christian, the other Jewish. Yes. So I I travelled to Israel. So we were at the River Jordan, the the place where Jesus was baptised. Yeah, there was two busloads arrived. One were American Christians, the other were American Jews. And um, they just remained completely separate from each other, both in very different narratives. So for the, for the Christians, Jesus was baptized there. Um, for the Jews, it's where the where the uh, where Israelites the Israelite slaves from Egypt yep. escaped into the Promised Land by crossing that holy river into Judea. Yeah, and and so they were standing next to each other, but they were both involved in completely separate narratives, and I think had at best no interest in what each of them was there for. Even though they're standing at the same place? Yeah, yeah, Mm. yeah. Well, up next on RN, God forbid, we are moving to the ordination of women in Buddhism and the extraordinary diversity that exists on this topic around the world. 
In Taiwan, there are far more Buddhist nuns than Buddhist monks. But in countries like Thailand, the ordination of women is officially not even recognised. Bukuni Damananda had to go to Sri Lanka to be fully ordained, and she was the first Thai woman to do so. Buddhist monks and nuns go on alms rounds, receiving charity in the form of a daily meal. So, what was it like for a woman... Bukuni Dharmananda, when she returned to Thailand. She's speaking with Kerry Stewart from Encounter. Thai people in general, they are very generous and they like to make offerings. That's their way of leading a religious life, you know, giving lots of offerings to the temples, to the monks. And we, women, are always the ones who provide. They always make the best dishes and then take it to the temple. And now when I am walking the line, going out for arms round, some women who followed me, some of them are so moved. They never thought that a woman would be in this role. You know, women have always been in the role of putting things in the bowl, but now we are receiver. It's a great impact on women, bringing about the understanding that men and women, likewise, we are equal in our potentiality to be enlightened. That is the Buddha statement. So I think we are bringing the fullness of Buddhist practice for both genders. But not everyone in Thailand saw it that way, and particularly some monks mm -hmm. and the government. Mm -hmm. So can you describe that difficulty that you had to rise above mm -hmm. and it sometimes fight? fight, if there is a fight, it is a fight against ignorance. And this fight against ignorance has no gender. It cut across male and female. The fact that the, the government has not recognized us is because the government is basing the responsibility on the Sangha. But the Sangha also cannot make a decision because they set a definition of the word Sangha to mean only the male Sangha. So when female Sangha comes into horizon, they don't know where to place us. So we are not illegal by constitution, we are protected by law, yet we are not legally recognized. So we are in a very strange stage and the fact that we are in this limbo, I think it's a good practice for our own self you know, to really know that things are impermanent, the fact that we have no recognition, even further our practice. We should not lead our life simply because we are recognized. We can also lead our life practicing very well without being recognized too. That's Bakuni Damananda. Bakuni means none. She was speaking with Kerry Stewart and we'll put the full interview on the God Forbid website. Susan Murphy, what did you think of her story? It's a very telling story in lots of ways, this ambiguous and even ambivalent place that women are in in the spiritual realm, not only in Buddhism, of course, but this long history of being effectively deemed not quite human, not fully human, not fully able to embody and embrace a full human spirituality, being perhaps impure, bodily impurities of have been legion in the lives of women in spiritual traditions. The accusation of uncleanliness and of impurity, of being too much the body, 
too alarmingly full of the very revelation of bodily life and death. The woman is the body, the man is the <laughs> mind and spirit. Exactly. But one might think that this is uh, not something that happens in the Buddhist tradition. Well, it has been certainly the case that practices and uh, teachings that have denigrated women profoundly is part of the Buddhist tradition or history or legacy. At the same time, the actual experience of practice, of offering yourself to no self, like the experience of no self, there is no male or female to be found there. It is completely open and there is no outside to it and there is nothing separate to be found. So that experience is in complete opposition to the, the notion of gender difference. And this leaves us with the fact that there are gender differences, that is physical, bodily and life experience differences, that are fundamentally there is no male or female separateness to be found in what it is to be a human being and mind. And that mind, that mind is not separate from the earth itself either. It is this profound sense of no separation that is at the core of Buddhism. So how can there be this, this, this gender difference forced upon women in such harsh forms at times? Aileen Barry, as we heard from Bhikkhuni Dharmananda, she's fully ordained even though her status isn't recognised by the Thai religious establishment. Mm. The feminist in you, of course, would say that is wrong. But does the Buddhist in you, in a kind of way, as she was perhaps saying, think it's okay because status and ego, she doesn't need them. They're obstacles to enlightenment, not vehicles. We don't have to go out looking for suffering. It will find us. Um, so, you know, I mean, of course, we all experience limitations in our lifetimes, but it doesn't mean that we have to impose them upon ourselves so that we can grow. I now, mean, now you tell me. Yeah. <laughs> Some monks have said, you know, you nuns are very lucky because you'll never be proud. And and isn't that great? You You can really learn from your humility. So it's better if we keep you down. Because you'll really grow spiritually from that. So it was a distortion of Buddhist teaching in the form of a very patronising comment. Those distortions, I think, are what Bhikkhuni Damananda is referring to when she's talking about ignorance. And she was saying that the fight against ignorance has no gender. That makes me think also of Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Yes. Aileen, as an ordained Buddhist nun, you have a title, Venerable. Uh, also, Susan, as a Zen master, you have a title, Roshi. If you lost those titles, if you lost that status, would it pain you? Susan? Not in the least. <laughs> Aileen? <laughs> no, not at all. So why do you both keep the titles then? I would say the title is given. It's not asked for. There's two forms of authority in, in Latin. One of them is imperium, and that's authority that is imposed. Octoritas is authority that is given. So I don't demand that title, but I accept it if it's offered, because I think it's useful for people, just like the wearing of a robe. And it's so interesting to see how that is both a gift to people, but also can become a kind of problem, the wearing of the robe. Because it carries with it a... Perhaps even an aura of some kind. You concur, Aileen. I'm nodding a lot here. <laughs> um, Venerably. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a great privilege to wear the robes. And, and I think it needs to come with a sense of freedom um, and a recognition that it's having an impact on other people. And I, I have to be very careful with it and, and recognise when I'm putting myself up on a pedestal. I mean, it does happen and it happens very invisibly and it doesn't serve me, it doesn't serve others. Can I just say something? There's a beautiful verse of the Rakasu, as we call it. That's, that's a kind of condensed version of the robes of the Buddha that we use. It's hung around the neck. It has a patchwork quality. It's a very mysterious garment. But the verse of the Rakasu that you say as you put it on says this, I wear the robe of the Buddha, the formless field of benefaction, the teachings of the Tathagata, which is a way of saying the Buddha, saving all the many beings. So that is formless benefaction. That means empty. The benefit is boundless and empty. It doesn't mm. have distinctions. It doesn't make claims. It doesn't own a single thing. It gives everything away, receives everything and gives it away. Mm. So that is the meaning for me of the robe of the Buddha. Well, Susan Murphy, tell me, the Buddha lived two and a half thousand years ago in India. Jesus lived... 2,000 years ago in Galilee. In a sense, they were feminists in their day, but by today's standards, they could be sexists. How do you navigate that? <laughs> well, you do have to have some critical understanding of history. The relativity of the kind of mind it's possible to possess in one age and another. At the same time, you can recognise how radical both of them were in terms of standing against the Hindu tradition and the received Jewish tradition at that time, and be grateful for their ability to, in the axial age, which was so intensely patriarchal, so brilliant in what it brought forth, but at the same time, so innately patriarchal. Um, this is that extraordinary period between two to 3,000 years ago, when for some reason, no one knows exactly why, the spiritual foundations of all humanity were laid simultaneously but separately in China, India, Persia, Judea, Greece. And they all had a patriarchal flavour. The male was the spirit and the mind, the female, the body. Yeah, and that is very much the legacy which has to be understood I guess forgiven, and but at the same time not accepted as appropriate any longer, if it ever was appropriate. In your speech at the Buddhist Women's Conference, you'll be quoting actually from a 20th century Chinese Tripitaka master who outlines what he calls the five female obstructions. Shall I briefly summarise them? Why don't you? <laughs> uh, the first obstruction is that women are unable to become the great Brahma, Lord. The body of a woman has too many impurities. Uh, the second obstacle is women cannot become chakra. Upon reaching the heavens, their bodies must become male. The third female obstruction, women are extremely libidinous. The fourth obstruction is when good occurs to others, women become jealous and lose compassion. And fifthly, women cannot become Buddhas because Buddhas have 10,000 virtues. Women have hearts the size of a sesame seed. <laughs> yeah, this is an anatomical fact, of course. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't two and a half thousand years ago. This is in living memory. Yes, within the 20th century. And when we think about that, we go, oh, that's just sexism. But it's much harder to see, as you were mentioning before, the assumptions that underlie that axial age that aren't so obvious today. Oh. 
What it, might be examples of those? Well, it, I mean, that particular Tripitaka master is giving you a very vigorous, uh, I wouldn't call it a teaching, I'd call <laughs> An unvarnished revelation of his interpretation. <laughs> of his limitation, of his inability to actually be in any possible way alive to the fact of no self and of the emptiness of everything that he is pointing to. You know, I mean, I think it's important for us to recognise that, um, I mean, this whole idea of inequality is as damaging to men as it is to women. It is dehumanising. And so, I mean, yes, it, there has to be a feminist component because of where this inequality is presenting itself. But it, it's just about trying to maintain balance which serves both male and female. That can be hard to do. Coming to this uh, International Conference of Buddhist Women is uh, the distinguished Jetsunma Tenzin Palmo. You were her attendant for many years. Mm -hmm. In 1964, she became only the second Western woman to be ordained in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. She lived in a monastery as the sole nun amongst a hundred monks. Yep. And then this prompted her to spend 12 years in a remote cave in the Himalayas? Well, she was instructed by her teacher to do retreat, yeah. But she describes that time in the monastery as um, the loneliest time in her life. Well, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Three years were in complete isolation. No, that part she didn't find lonely. It, oh. it was being with the monks. Yeah, Being with the monks yeah. was lonely. Being yeah. alone in the cave at minus 35 degrees was... She loved that. I think that's where she was happiest. Goodness me. Yeah. And w what do you make of this woman? She's a, how would you describe your relationship with her? I, I mean, it's been one of the very great blessings of, and privileges of my life to have spent all of that time with her. Her isolation was uh, a means to, I would say, make her more present in the world. In, in the same way that if you go to medical school, it's not to distance yourself ultimately from your patients. It's to make you a better doctor so that when you do encounter your patients, you're skilled and capable of helping them. Does that mean if you do go on retreat, you must come back? Otherwise, it's worthless? It's for the benefit of others. So ultimately, you have to come back. How long that takes is another story. Yes. On our end, it is God forbid, we're with the venerable Aileen Barry, a Buddhist nun. She's worked as a prison chaplain. She's worked in a remote Himalayan monastery and for years attended to Tenzin Palmo. Also with us, Roshi Susan Murphy, Zen master, Buddhist teacher, author of many titles, including Minding the Earth, Mending the World. If you'd like to receive a religion and ethics uh, package each week in your email, you can sign up for our newsletter. It's got news, analysis, features, stories and more. Just Google ABC Religion and uh, subscribe at the bottom of the page. Buddhism is the third largest religion in Australia, after Christianity and Islam. But research into its history in this country is relatively sparse and recent. Associate Professor Anna Halifoff is trying to redress that, especially by exploring the role of Australian Buddhist women. She's speaking with RN's Hong Jiang. In the very early period of Buddhism in Australia, pre-1901, that period we don't know all that much about. But what's important is that there actually were significant numbers of 
Japanese working in the north of Australia in the pearl fishing industry. There were also significant numbers of Sri Lankans in the sugarcane farming industry and also of Chinese all throughout the country in gold mining. And we don't know yet what percentage of them were Buddhist or what percentage of them might have been Christian or not religious, but we do know that these were the earliest perhaps Buddhists in Australia. Then with the advent of the White Australia policy, the introduction of the White Australia policy, that period was dominated more by what we would call white or Western Buddhism. And during that period, women played quite a significant role in helping to establish the early Buddhist societies in Australia. Then from the 1970s onward marks a new period, which we refer to as the Buddhist boom. We have the first so-called ethnic Buddhist or Asian Buddhist communities in large numbers in Australia. And these include the earliest Tibetan Buddhists and Buddhists from Thailand, Cambodia. And we also have some Western women who become nuns in these traditions. Notable people are Debbie Kane, who was Australian and became Venerable Chikwan Sunim in the Korean Buddhist tradition, and she's currently our most senior nun, and also Venerable Niroda in the Thai tradition. Many of these women also helped set up the early Buddhist centers and also in helping to buy land and establish some of the earliest Buddhist communities in Australia. So how does Australian and Western feminism interact with more Eastern Buddhist principles? There are some people who see these two things in opposition, and they can see that within some traditional frameworks of Buddhism that they are quite patriarchal. And then they equate Western society with gender equity more strongly. But again, our research and certainly the work of other scholars uh, within the field of gender and Buddhism suggests that that split is not so straightforward. And that at the time that the Buddha was alive, even though the Buddha originally resisted ordaining women, he did eventually agree to do so. And when questioned about the potential to reach enlightenment, he uh, unequivocally said that women and men had the same potential to do so. So, you know, that's actually quite feminist, uh, one could say. So in Australia, the clash really isn't between the traditions, um, between the so-called East and the West. The clash is within the traditions where you have um, conservative actors, but also progressive actors within all religious traditions, Buddhism, Christianity, and even non-religious traditions. That's Anna Halafoff, Associate Professor of Sociology at Deakin University, and she was speaking with Hong Jiang. So, Aileen Barry, what do you make of that point? There's not a clash between Eastern and Western Buddhism, but traditional conservative and modern liberal strands in both the Eastern and Western mm. contexts. You know, Buddhism, as, as I would say with any religion, that it, it, to put it simply, it needs to keep up with the times. It needs to be relevant. And when Buddhism moves from one culture to another, it brings with it a cultural package. It, I think it's called upon us to extract the essence of it if we're going to use it to transform our minds. And so whatever culture it plants itself in, it will take on the flavour of that culture. But again, it's, it's called upon us to, to strip away what's extraneous and, and find the essence of it. And, and essentially, again, that's finding the essence of our humanity. Susan Murphy. Well, I, <clears throat> I'm, I'm interested by the moment when I first began to teach. I had women coming to me saying, 
It is such a relief to be able to hear a woman in the seat of the teacher. It is mm. such a relief to me as a woman to have the sense that perhaps I can expand into this space. I can belong here. I can, I can actually discover myself profoundly here without any kind of baggage about being this or that, being a woman, not a woman, being appropriate, not appropriate. And this is something that it's a subtle or, or even very overt pressure that women live with all the time. Mm. And for it to be lifted off is a great relief. So I think actually that the coming of Buddhism to the West is extremely good for Buddhism. But still that pressure is not going away. There are men and women who will maintain traditional roles gender-based. And Aileen, in your own tradition, the ordination of women, am I correct, isn't universally recognised. No, I mean, within Tibetan Buddhism, it's not possible to get full ordination. It's been debated for decades. and It, it is about, main, they are maintaining restrictions that that they're carrying with them for centuries. But these are the debates of our times that will continue for centuries more, won't they? Whatever form they take, dealing with irreconcilable religious or denominational difference. It might be Israel for Lao, it might be same-sex yep. marriage, it might be the ordination of women. The only thing that's certain is there'll be no consensus. Yeah, but I think this is what happens when we rely upon the external structure as well. Thomas Merton, as an example, was um, somebody who... I think was constantly questioning and investigating and trying to understand the human condition. It actually was actually in his last speech, I mean, hours before he died, he said, we have to stand on our own two feet. We can't rely upon the structures. They're like a scaffolding. They can support and carry us. But ultimately, we have to get beyond them. But if we start to buy into that external structure and, and identify ourselves by that, then by definition, we're also excluding a lot more that's not within that structure. Even the label Buddhist is just another label. I mean, I know it's kind of ridiculous if I'm walking around in Buddhist robes to say, I don't even know if I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> but everything is transitory. So this is just something that's helping me along the way. And everything that I've done before, I would hope I can integrate into continuing. On our end, it's God forbid, we're with the Venerable Aileen Barry and Roshi Susan Murphy. stay out of politics? Is the fate of the earth a practical question or one of religious doctrine? Temporal or spiritual? Profane or profound? These arguments are as old as religion itself. And when it comes to the issue of climate change, Pope Francis and the Dalai Lama and other religious leaders have called for action. It is in that sense, the mixing of religion and science. Susan Murphy, you're recognised internationally among Buddhists as a leader in so-called eco-Buddhism. How do you see this mix of religion and science? Well, the, the mix is more between the practice of being present and the reality that is unfolding on the earth. 
It's as immediate as the last summer we've just been through, which has broken every possible record. The ability of human beings to deny the evidence is inexhaustible, apparently. It's also encouraged by something that has come to be called predatory denialism, meaning the actual weaponization of denial. One example is the tobacco industry and the way that it completely confounded the obvious medical findings about the effects of smoking. It's called predatory because it allows predation to continue unabated, unchecked, while denialism is made almost conceivable as part of consensual reality that, yes, we can hope that what we're noticing is not true. But if you, in the name of your Buddhism, fight that with the aid of climate scientists, aren't you making a climate scientist a kind of spiritual guru, which is a bridge you don't want to cross? I have no problems with scientists being who they are. I mean, why do you call that a guru? Well, if you normally would have your faith in God or or clergy uh, as holders of special knowledge, if you're saying it's the climate scientist who has the, you know. But then <clears throat> you've just touched exactly the difference between Buddhism and a theistic faith. I mean, the Buddha was a human being, and the only distinguishing point he would make about himself was that he is awake. Now, that awakeness belongs to every human being. So scientists can be utterly awake too. There's not a dividing line here between spiritual practice, as I recognise it, and science, which I love. I love the revelations of science. They're brilliant. They're in deep accord with, with what becomes apparent to you when you meditate deeply. Aileen Barry, mm. do you think the Western spiritual tradition, the book of Genesis as an example, can be unhelpful in the climate change debate because it puts man or, or, or humans as the dominant stewards over all else? It, it, there's a term in Tibetan, which I haven't got the Tibetan phrase in my mind now, but, but it means container and contained. No chud? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Is that correct, Eileen? Yes. No yeah. chud. Yeah. And so the container is the environment and the contained is its living essence. That doesn't just refer to human beings, that refers to all sentient life. So Buddhism doesn't make that distinction between human beings and every other being that's inhabiting this planet. And I think that's one of the divisions that when we do make it, it's, it's as catastrophic as the distinctions that we make between gender. Our stewardship of this planet, in its essence, it's all sacred. We talk about sacred places. We've got churches, we've got temples, we've got places that we designate as sacred, as if they're separate from every other atom of this universe. But everything is sacred. All life is sacred. And if we don't recognize and wake up to that, I mean, the ignorance that we're talking about, it's not passive. It's actually a very active ignorance that's keeping us trapped. Susan Murphy, if Buddhism is about non-attachment, can that mean non-attachment to the earth in a way that's unhelpful in this climate change era? Well, non-attachment is not referring to not loving and not responding and not being radiantly open towards primarily the earth that makes our life possible. So non-attachment is often misunderstood as if it's some sort of careful 
self-alienation from what is. It's the very opposite. Mm. To be deeply connected and within connectedness, or let's call it connectedness because that's a, a word that a wonderful old Aboriginal auntie once used with me when she said reality is connectedness. Mm. If you're not in connectedness, you're not in reality. Does that mean it's also a misconstrual of Buddhist teachings to say that you're selfishly motivated to protect the earth because you believe you're going to be reincarnated in a future generation which will want to have an earth to be reincarnated into? Look, I'm, I don't carry reincarnation with me. I carry it as an imponderable. One of the, <laughs> I've added it to the list of the Buddha's imponderables. So I'm not seeing it that way, but I would say I see it immediately and viscerally in terms of our descendants, the people coming after us. Another um, wise Aboriginal elder, because it, they're deeply connected to Dharma, as far as I'm concerned, said recently, it's not appropriate anymore to think of ourselves as receiving a legacy from the past, this beautiful earth. It is only appropriate to see it as how are we going to hand it on. We are the guardians of three generations hence, their earth. And that's a, such a different way of understanding, you know, why we're here, what we're doing, what we love and what kind of vow that wakes up in us. Tell me about your Indigenous friend, Uncle Max Harrison. Uncle Max Harrison I would call a teacher of mine. He is somebody I've walked with and taught with um, over more than 20 years. He's not a Buddhist. He's not not a Buddhist. He's not not a Buddhist. <laughs> like me, he's not not a Buddhist. I did that on my census form. <laughs> I said, not not all the boxes. Exactly. I think the computer just spat it out as a... <laughs> Okay, so Uncle Max Harrison, who's also known by his, his name, Dolomunmun, he is a fully initiated South Coast Indigenous... Elder. Elder and leader, teacher and wonderful human being. Anyway, I was out with him in country and with a, with a group of people from Australians for Native Title and Reconciliation. So the word reconciliation was very dear to them. At a certain point, he stopped and said, you know, I don't hold with this word reconciliation. And we were all naturally quite shocked to hear what might come, from, come next. He said, how can there be reconciliation when there has not been relationship in the first place? He was talking about reconciliation between white fellows, black fellows, but... Taking it more deeply, you can go way deeper with this sense of reconciliation with no relationship. But he said then, I tell both mobs, he picked up a handful of earth, held it out to us and said, I tell both mobs, reconcile with this, reconcile with the earth itself. And it isn't hard to see that if that reconciliation is taken seriously, to reconcile with the earth and to work through all the thousands of fascinating layers of reconciliation to be discovered there, that pretty much every form of reconciliation will have been achieved by the end of that process. It is the final relinquishment of the self <laughs> and acceptance of life and death and the earth itself just as it is, which is really the profound teaching of the Buddha. Rather than being in some kind of encapsulated self 
at war with life, at war with the delusion of the other, that there is some other out there that is opposed and detrimental or fearful or, or worth getting, something other than the entirety of what is here at every point. Eileen. And I think the conclusion of that is, is that reminder that everything is already perfect. We just have to tap into that and drop away from this, the false identifications that are keeping us trapped. Beautiful. Okay, shall we get into the quiz? Okay. Here we go. Wits and... Yes, it's Wits and the God Forbid quiz, and this week a Zen Buddhist Roshi and a venerable Buddhist nun, each seeking the trivial nirvana that comes from correctly answering unimportant questions. As always, we begin with the buzzers. Feminist Roshi Susan Murphy, test your buzzer. The central message of Buddhism is not every man for himself. That's Jamie Lee Curtis in A Fish Called Wanda. There's one from the past. The venerable Aileen Barry who lived through years of seclusion in a Himalayan nunnery. Test your buzzer. Lord Buddha, I know I'm not supposed to want stuff, but come on. Uh, that's Buddhist Lisa Simpson, challenged by consumerism. First question. ABC News last year reported that 48% of Buddhist monks in Thailand are A, too greedy, B, too egotistical, C, too fat, or D, too thin. The central message of Buddhism is not every man for himself. I'd say too greedy. Too greedy from Susan, Aileen? Uh, I would have said all of the above, but I don't know about the too thin. <laughs> Everything except too thin. Well, here's the answer from that ABC News report. With high blood pressure and diabetes, 48% of Thailand's monks are obese. Part of the problem is the donated food, which monks have to accept. But the real culprit is the sugary drinks that monks sip to get them through their afternoon fasting. That's ABC and Wits End Bangkok. Correspondent Liam Cochran. The answer, they are too fat. Next question. Sportswear company Nike is trying to expand its market share by adding its swoosh logo to religious items of apparel. So what items has it added to its sportswear range? A, the saffron robe worn by Buddhist monks. B, the habit worn by Christian nuns. C, the hijab. Or D, the turban. The central message of Buddhism is not every man for himself. I'd say the hijab. And Aileen? I would also say the hijab. Is C correct, the hijab? Here's Al Jazeera's report with the answer. An increasingly common sight on the sporting field, from the Olympics to professional football. And now companies are trying to cash in on the action. Nike wants a slice of the growing market with its new product, a hijab for female athletes. Yes, you are quite correct. The hijab now with Nike's famous swoosh logo. And the Nike ad selling the swoosh hijab was screened across the Middle East. It depicts Muslim women boxing, skateboarding and playing football. And it says in Arabic, what will they say about you? That you're unladylike? Or maybe that you're strong. You can't be stopped. You make it look easy and you're the next big thing. So the next question is, is that Nike hijab ad in Arabic which went viral a victory for feminism or corporatism? <laughs> Everything is the victory for corporatism. <laughs> <laughs> this is the next serious question. The tallest statue of a woman is 100 metres in Sendai, Japan. 
If you also include the height of a pedestal, the tallest statue of a woman is 108 metres, and that's on China's Hainan Island. Both statues are of the same woman. Who is she? Lord Buddha, I know I'm not supposed to want stuff, but come on! Kuan Yin. Probably Kuan Yin. You are yeah. both correct. <laughs> she is the goddess of... Well, she's not a goddess. She's, she's actually the emanation of compassion that you have to discover in, in yourself. Is that correct, Aileen? Yes. Next question. Listen to this celebrity speak about Buddhism. I have tried it all. I've been a Christian. I've been a Catholic. I have been totally new age. I have been Episcopalian. I've tried Scientology. I've, you know, I have. And I find that Buddhism is the, the, the most amazing, transcendent path to enlightenment for me. Who is she? The central message of Buddhism is not every man for himself. She's a Hollywood actress, obviously. <laughs> is Can it Madonna? No. Uh, Grunge singer from the 90s. Was married to Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain. Uh, Has the word love in her surname and Courtney as a given name. <laughs> Could that be I, Courtney Love? They're correct. The final clue got you across yeah. the line. Still on Courtney Love, in addition to enlightenment... Sorry, Courtney. <laughs> Courtney says Buddhism gives her what? It also gives her A, peace, B, insight, C, compassion, or D, Buddhism gives her, quote, shit she wants. Well, it wouldn't be shit she wants. It wouldn't be shit she wants is the guest from Susan Murphy. Here's Courtney with her revelation. <laughs> and I find that Buddhism, it absolutely works. You know, you sit at your altar and you chant. And the cool thing is you chant for shit that you want and you get it. <laughs> You are wrong, Susan. You've been chanting the wrong way all these years. <laughs> the, the next question, and I'm sure you'll uh, get this, who is the first Buddhist nun? The central message of Buddhism is not every man for himself. Mahapajapati. And who was she? She was the, the, actually the aunt of the Buddha, who raised him as if she was his mother. Why? What about Buddha's mum? Buddha's mum died within some days of his birth. Next question. How many times did Buddha's aunt ask to be ordained before the Buddha agreed? Many, but um, I'm not sure how many. Yeah, I don't know how many. I mean, definitely, yeah, I would say many as well. The Trinity. The, yeah, I was wondering if it was three. You three. Have to ask three three, three yeah. usually means many. Yeah. What is it about three in religion? <laughs> oh. Next question. When the spiritual leader of Tibetan Buddhism, the Dalai Lama, was asked by Larry King on CNN whether a future Dalai Lama would be a woman, did he answer yes or no? The central message of Buddhism is not every man for himself. I hope he said certainly. Aileen, you agree? Um, I'm not sure what, what he's always said in that particular instance, but I think he, he, he generally he says it's always a possibility. Well, here is the Dalai Lama with the answer. You think we will ever see a female Dalai Lama? Yes, it's very possible. Yes, it is entirely possible, he says. And for that, the Dalai Lama won the affection of feminists around the world. But a mere five seconds later, in the same interview, the Dalai Lama lost the affection of feminists around the world. Why? Lord Buddha, I know I'm not supposed to want stuff, but come on! Did he solemnly say that if, but if he was born a woman, he would be an attractive woman? Well, let's find out. Here's the Dalai Lama mansplaining his description of a future female Dalai Lama. Many years ago, one woman asked me, any possibility, female Dalai Lama? Then I told the reporter, if 
female Donald Trump. The female must be very, very attractive. Aileen Barry is correct. The Dalai Lama <laughs> says the next female Dalai Lama will be attractive, must be attractive, says the mansplaining Dalai Lama himself. <laughs> Though according to a viral meme that's going around, it's only mansplaining if it comes from the mansplain region of France. Technically what the Dalai Lama was explaining there was sparkling misogyny. Now, mm. with that, we have reached the end of God Forbid. But what a show it's been. Thank you, Aileen. Thank you very much, James. And thank you, Susan. Such a pleasure. Roshi Susan Murphy. She's a Zen master and Buddhist teacher and the author of Minding the Earth, Mending the World. Also, the venerable Aileen Barry. A Buddhist nun, she's worked in prisons as a chaplain, lived in a remote Himalayan monastery and for years was the attendant to Tenzin Palma. Both Susan and Aileen will be at the 16th Sakyadita Conference. That's New Horizons in Buddhism. It's bringing the finest female Buddhist minds from around the world to the Blue Mountains. That conference, the 23rd to the 28th of June. Men are welcome. Oh, and men, I'm told, are welcome. We'll put a link on the website. Don't forget you can subscribe to the God Forbid podcast on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. For more on Buddhism, do tune in to Compass on ABC TV Sunday 23rd of June. It'll be a program exploring the life of a Sri Lankan couple who were once married and have now given up everything on their path to monkhood. That's Hoping for Harmony, June 23rd, 6.30pm on ABC TV. I'm James Carlton. Until next week, remember to be good. God forbid. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.